I'm delighted to present to you the real Gerald Sitzer. Here he is. Um, and so we are, we're glad he's here with us. And he'll be speaking to us uh, this morning on John Cassian. So it's what's in your booklet as session two. Um, and we'll, again, have the same format. He'll present, and we'll have our respondents. There'll be a little bit of time for Q&A. Keep in mind, though, we've got an hour and a half blocked off after lunch for a general Q&A session. Um, I'll, have, I'll have folks say a few things, but I want to let you know you've got plenty of time for those questions. So as things start percolating and uh, questions start arising from the kinds of conversations we're having, um, you can write things down or, or keep, keep those notes, and uh, we'll, we'll have plenty of time for that discussion, if not during each individual session at the end there. And um, with that, I think we're good. I'll turn it over to you. Okay, thanks, thanks Alex. Uh, I learned uh, yesterday <clears throat> uh, with uh, several delays <clears throat> that I think I'm going to start following the strategy, having somebody else read a paper that I write. <clears throat> Here's the thing. Uh, if you don't like it, it's because he read it. If you do like it, it's because I wrote it. <laughs> so I, I may make this standard uh, practice now. So thanks, Alex, for, uh, for stepping in and, and doing that. <clears throat> By the way, I, I teach uh, church history for a living at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. And one of my goals is to introduce students to um, the, the world of the church. Uh, you know, Christians do more than think. Christians sing. Christians pray. Christians build things. Christians fight. And so one of the things that I've done, uh, well, we use the divine office every morning in my class, a shortened version of it, couldn't do it as long as this is. We'd never get to the subject. Um, So a shortened version of it. And I play a lot of music in class, and we also sing every day in class through the history of hymnody. So, for example, we'll sing uh, Ambrose's great uh, uh, hymn um, that is uh, used uh, in the morning office in many uh, traditions. Oh, splendor of, of uh, what is it? Oh, splendor of God's glory bright, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I was, a, a memory was awakened because this morning we said the Te Deum, and that's been put to music a lot. So over the course of a semester, I'll play them three musical renditions of Te Deum. The best, I think, is Benjamin Britten's Te Deum, And then uh, a more recent one is John Rutter, both uh, famous British composers. And the third is Ervo Pertz. Has anyone ever heard of Ervo Pertz? Oh, we have a few. Google him sometime. He he defines himself as a kind of mystical composer. He he hails from Estonia. He's kind of a national treasure of Estonia, a convert to Eastern Orthodoxy. And his music is... Unusual. It takes a while to get used to, but it is gorgeous music. And he has a rendition of Te Deum, I think, is worth listening to. So I don't know why I told you that, but uh, uh, I, I do a lot of that in, in class so that students can smell and taste and touch and see and hear the history of the church, not just think about it. Uh, I also thought a little bit about the fact that I'm probably the only Presbyterian here. Is that true? And if it is, I, I began to think a little bit this morning about the difference between 
uh, my tribe and your tribe. And I kept uh, coming out on the short end of the stick there. Uh, your wine wore grape juice. I mean, a no-brainer. <clears throat> uh, you have the Book of Common Prayer. We have Calvin's Institutes. <laughs> you have clerical collars. We wear ties. <laughs> Boring. Um, <clears throat> Cranmer's beard is so much cooler than Calvin's scraggly beard was. Um, You have the Bible, we have sermons. I'm glad there was a delay there, but it's true. You don't even need sermons. And we have to have them, and they have to be good, or the place falls apart in a year or two, you know. Um, You have the ESV, we have the NRSV. I mean, on and on, I I came to the conclusion, you're just way cooler than we are. So I'm glad I can join you in in this uh, session together. All right, I'm going to read this, and I'll make some comments as as I go along. The most famous and well-known of monastic rules, as you know, comes from the pen, mind, and heart of Benedict. Uh, As Greg points out, there were lots of rules that were written, and that one kind of gradually emerged as the dominant one in the West, although there are others that are still used. You know, Augustine's got one in the the Eastern Church. Uh, Basil's uh, is still used, his short rule and long rule, but we're most familiar now with Benedict, still used around the world today. He lived in the 6th century. Um, I have my students just read it over Jan term when I took them up to the mountains for a month, uh, uh, a course on monasticism. And (laughs) you you have to prepare them for it because it is a little odd at certain points. They love the beatings, for example. They think, Jerry, don't do that to us while we're up here. And I say no because there would be lawsuits all over the place. But it's short. Excuse me. and practical, and detailed, and considering the standards of the day, it was actually quite humane. Now, there's much in it worthy of exploring that could benefit the church today, and this is Greg's calling, really, in life, is to make monasticism um, useful for the life of the church. He's kind of reclaiming this ancient document and, and, uh, and this ancient practice for the church today, And I commend you for that calling and wish you well in it. I want to draw attention to just one very short feature in Benedict's rule. This is going to be a little bit more idiosyncratic as a lecture yesterday. It was an introduction to the early Christian catechumenate area I've done a lot of research on. Uh, This is going to actually be based on one short paragraph from Benedict's rule. It's It's a very curious section. In it, Benedict prescribes what monks should do in the silence that follows compline. As it turns out, monks are to be silent for a very specific reason. Their silence should give way to listening, which I guess is the point of silence. Benedict directs monks to listen to the lector as he reads to the monks. Now, this is the section from Benedict's rule. Monks at all times ought to study silence. Isn't that a delicious phrase? Study silence. But most of all, during the night. 
through the year, whether they are having supper or fasting, a similar rule should apply. In the time of year when they are having suppers, as soon as they rise from the table, they shall assemble in one place, and one of them shall read the conferences, and I'm including the institutes there. Or, uh, by the way, that's Cashin's Institutes, not Calvin's Institutes. He came just a little later in the story. And the lives of the fathers, or at least some book which will edify the listeners. The reader shall read four or five pages, or as much as time allows. During this interview, anyone interval, anyone who has been occupied with special duties, has time to join the assembled brothers. And I'm using Owen Chadwick's translation. In this section of his rule, Benedict only mentions two books by name, only two. The Lives of the Fathers, that of course had multiple authors, and uh, the conferences written by the 4th and 5th century monk John Cassian. Now, that Benedict thought to include him is astonishing because Cassian had fallen out of favor in the West due to his sympathies with what became known as semi-Pelagianism. It's a big controversy, actually, uh, between Cassian and St. Augustine. But Benedict knew that his reputation as a monastic founder and writer still loomed large, as it does to this day. He was the only Latin writer to be included in the collections of the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers. Isn't that interesting? The only one. A little bit about Cassian. He most likely grew up in the Baltics, though scholars are unsure of that. He left his native land when he was in his 20s, having been lured to the eastern Mediterranean by the strange stories of desert fathers and mothers. It's hard for us to imagine what this must have been like to hear these stories trickling out and to be utterly fascinated by these masters of the desert. Cassian and his traveling partner, Germanus, settled into a monastery in Bethlehem for a while, but soon grew restless to travel to Egypt and meet the masters of this movement. And they arrived there in probably the 380s or early 390s when it was kind of the heyday of the movement. The whole thing fell apart for various reasons around the year 400. Receiving permission to leave the monastery, they visited several places where the desert fathers uh, and mothers of Egypt lived. There they stayed for seven years, returning only once to Bethlehem to report on what they had seen and heard. Forced out of Egypt around the year 400, they fled to Constantinople where they met the famous uh, bishop, Archbishop John Chrysostom. We've all heard of that name, obviously, who dazzled them with his preaching, impressed them with his moral and spiritual vigor, and ordained them to church office. By the way, I have uh, my students in my History of Christianity uh, first semester class read a collection of his sermons, and they're astonished at how well they still read. I mean, it's good preaching, and I have them read uh, a couple of sermons on 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians 5, because uh, this is the stage when students are thinking a lot about marriage and family and so on, and they are really impressed. There's one great line in Chrysostom where a uh, parishioner is, is saying to him, uh, why don't you uh, tell my wife she needs to submit to me? And Chrysostom uh, remarks, uh, well, then maybe you should think about dying for her. 
I mean, there's just a lot of interesting, pithy stuff, but he was a good exegete. A few years later, Chrysostom II fell into trouble, as you probably know. So Germanus and Cassian traveled to Rome on Chrysostom's behalf to seek the aid of the Pope. Cassian eventually landed in Gaul and helped to found two monasteries there. And there he wrote two important books on Egyptian monasticism because a local bishop wanted to use what Cassian had learned there to motivate and instruct the Western church in the ascetic way of life. Cassian was also involved in several controversies, the most famous his dispute with Augustine over the issue of free will. By the way, with that in mind, when you read the conferences, it just screams controversy. But Augustine's name is never mentioned. He died sometime in the 430s. Now, already in Cassian's day, Egypt had earned a reputation as the place where desert spirituality had reached the pinnacle of its power and influence. The reputed founder of the desert tradition, obviously it was not Anthony of Egypt, but he had the reputation of that, was becoming a household name, uh, largely because of Athanasius' famous biography of him. It's interesting that Augustine mentions this in the Confessions, and so already there was a Latin translation of this book written by the famous Archbishop Athanasius. And this was circulating around the Mediterranean world. The word desert immediately brings to mind visions of barrenness, isolation, deprivation, and hardship. In Cassian's day, however, the stories of the desert fathers and mothers had turned the desert into a metaphor for influence as well as asceticism, as if these masters had withdrawn into the most inhospitable place on earth and created a kind of new Eden. In fact, it's interesting, many of the stories of the desert fathers and mothers will tell of a a famous ascetic who has a lion as a pet or something like that, all signals that are saying, we're reclaiming Eden in this inhospitable kind of environment. Well, Cassian's Institutes, the first book he wrote, describes the habits, dress, and practices of the monks, depicting their way of life as a kind of ascetic ideal, and then outlines in some detail the eight deadly vices or thoughts. That's what I'll return to today. The conferences explore the teachings of a dozen or so of the masters of the desert and focuses on such topics as discretion, purity of heart, and prayer. He wrote the Institutes first, and then wrote the conferences in three stages, uh, books 1 through 10, then 11 through 17, and finally 18 to 24. It's a very thick book. Benedictine monks listened to a lot of Cassian then, didn't they? Almost every day. And there is a lot of Cassian to absorb, too. He's a kind of theologian of the desert. His conferences, for example, number hundreds of pages. There is much we could explore in his writings, but I want to concentrate on only one theme, what I call the battle of the heart. The Egyptian masters taught Cassian that the Christian life demands struggle. Struggle is the norm. The fallenness of the world, the perversity of human nature, And the call of discipleship push us into this life of struggle of which the sayings of the Desert Fathers, this mosaic of their teaching, reminds us on almost every page. It's just 
everywhere. However hard we try to avoid it, it will eventually have its way with us. That is struggle. For this is one battle we simply cannot escape. So we might as well face it squarely, especially as it manifests itself in the human heart. I quote from two uh, famous sayings. Um, Abba Anthony taught, The man who abides in solitude and is quiet is delivered from fighting three battles. Those of hearing, speech, and sight. Then he will have but one battle left to fight, the battle of the heart. That's just a great quote. Cassian writes similarly, No one is more my enemy than my own heart, which is truly the one of my household closest to me. So I want to describe first this battle of the heart using Cassian's description of the eight deadly vices. Then I will show how Cassian sets a course uh, to help us find a way out. Now, what did Cassian mean by the eight deadly vices? This will be familiar territory to you, but maybe not as Cassian explores it. Of course, we know them today more popularly as the seven deadly sins due to the influence of Gregory the Great, who also wrote a biography of John Cassian. But, oh, no, no, he wrote a biography of Benedict, excuse me. But words like vice and sin are not quite right, for they tend to connote only bad behavior. As we well know, sin has as much to do with the mind as it does with behavior. Cassian studied under the Egyptian master of Agrius Ponticus, who died in 399, who used the word logismoi instead of vice or sins to explore and describe the depths of the human condition. The word is rich and complex. It could be translated simply as thought. But the real meaning is subtler than that. Evagrius did not have a passing thought in mind here, the kind that flashes across the screen of the mind at a pace that leaves no trace in the memory. Instead, he had in mind the kind of thought that seeps in and eventually dominates the mind. You know what I'm talking about if you're observant of your own nature. Such a thought takes up residence in the soul and eventually inhabits it driving out all others. It's really the torment of sin, not simply what we do, it's what we think. I don't know if you've ever met uh, with someone in a brief digression here who, who does something incredibly stupid. I mean, you think, oh my goodness, this was such a stupid decision. And everyone will say, oh my gosh, what was he? That's Agrius's point, he was. He had been thinking about it for months or even years, and then given the right opportunity, it always leads to some kind of errant and destructive action. All sin begins in the mind and imagination. As I reviewed uh, his explanation of the eight deadly vices, keep in mind that he was writing to monks, which will require us to do some translating of his ideas to make them applicable to us. We could use this list as a kind of diagnostic tool that helps us understand what has gone so desperately wrong with human nature. The diagnosis is devastating, but the cure brings hope. The disease, as it turns out, 
is not terminal, which should motivate us to want to learn more about it before we seek the proper cure. By the way, in my course on monasticism, I use this as a diagnostic tool, and students do an exercise on meditating on the seven, I use seven deadly sins, uh, in order to uh, explore the larger concept of grace, grace that actually gets traction because we discover how much we need it. And they'll go into the exercise thinking, yeah, you know, I probably commit the sin of uh, uh, vainglory. And by the time they're done with it, they look at me and say, I had no idea who I was. All right, so let's go through the eight briefly. Gluttony was like the foothills of the spiritual life. Failure to conquer this vice implies one is not ready to climb to the higher elevations of Christian discipleship. And there's a reason for this. We always have to eat. Thus, the temptation is always with us. Gluttony suffocates the soul with indulgence. There are three kinds of gluttony that Cassian mentions. Gregory the Great, by the way, uh, expands the list to five. We eat too early or too often. We eat too much. Or we are too fussy when we eat, insisting on delicacies. The antidote is to eat at lawful moments, to be satisfied with a slender diet, to be content with cheaper food. The needs of the flesh are really not the problem. It is the desires of the flesh that are dangerous. By the way, one of the things I say to students, it's not just about eating too much. Foodies can be just as gluttonous as people that indulge themselves with lots of donuts every day. And I'm sure in San Francisco, there may be one or two foodies around. Gluttony consists of putting desire above need. We should therefore exercise temperance, putting need above desire. Abstinence itself is not the ultimate solution. Do you hear that? It should be subordinate to conscience, for everyone's practice ought to be different. The battle against gluttony is important, for it prepares us for other battles to come. It is like a training camp. Success will spill over into other areas. Fasting is part of the solution. But fasting, says Cassian, can be dangerous too. It too is vulnerable to sins such as vainglory and pride. Fasting is a means, not an end. Purity of heart is the end. In approaching food, which we obviously need, we should follow three simple rules. It should be easy to prepare cheap to purchase, appropriate for our way of life. Moreover, hospitality should always take precedence over fasting. Food might make us sluggish, but fasting can make us proud. So fasting must be subordinate to charity. Cassian identified Egypt as the ideal. He does in everything. The monks practiced regular and vigorous fasting, but the masters would eat many times a day if hospitality required it. And then they'd go back to their fasting. Macarius stated that a monk should pay attention to fasting as if he were going to dwell in the body for a hundred years and that he should restrain the movements of the mind, forget slights, reject sadness and disdain sorrow and setbacks if he were going to die daily. 
Cassian called fornication a savage war. It is long and hard and grueling. In addition to contrition, monks should practice meditation, toilsome labor, and humility to overcome this enemy. Abstinence is necessary, but chastity is the end. Uh, One's own strength is not enough. We need God's help. Quote, for the soul cannot escape being attacked by this vice until it realizes that waging this war is beyond its own powers and that it cannot obtain that victory by its own toil and effort without the assistance and protection of the Lord. End of quote. The discipline to resist this vice must be severe. Abstinence from everything, foods that give pleasure, drunkenness, laziness, and of course sexual intercourse. Cassian even advocates draping a piece of lead over the groin at night to prevent night emissions. By the way, when the conferences were translated in the 19th century into English, English, you know, the great translation project, uh, the chapter on fornication in the conferences was left in Latin. (laughs) Did you know that? Because it is so direct and graphic. Modern translation, more recent, they have it. But the famous late 19th century translation, you pick it up and you look at it, it's still in Latin. I find that quite funny. <laughs> These Victorians, you know, are just too much, too much. Night emissions, don't mention things like that. He warns monks that during the day, monks should never allow themselves to entertain thoughts of lust. And I love what he says here. Negligence during the day is sure to lead to fantasy at night. The battle is during the day. That will protect you when you're sleeping at night. Monks must root out all remembrance of women. Still, purity of heart is the desired outcome, the true virtue. Now, unlike gluttony, both gluttony and fornication, avarice is not rooted in a natural desire. The temptation of gluttony and fornication arrive early in life and precede the ability to distinguish between good and evil. There is a natural incitement in them, as he says. Avarice arrives later and comes from outside nature. It is inherently evil. Once yielded to, it makes the soul miserable. It has a small beginning growing out of a lax and lukewarm mind. It operates by a kind of perverse logic, too. It originates when there is some reason to hold money or possessions back, some deprivation one has experienced, or the anticipation of some future loss. Uh, Modern translation, honey, we really need to make sure we have enough saved up for our retirement because you never know what's going to happen. Then the complaining starts and excuses are given. The more one slides into avarice, the more insatiable the appetite is. There is no satisfying it, I'm quoting. And so the unhappy soul is agitated and tied up in the serpentine entanglements as he seeks to increase a wickedly accumulated means of subsistence by a concern that, there, uh, that is still more harmful, generating in himself the very malady by which he may yet be more fearfully infected. Or again, his faith disappears 
whenever there glitters some hope of gain. Isn't that great choice of words, glitter? If to any degree, again I quote, any degree the hope of profit slips his grasp, he does not fear to get beyond the limit set by honesty and humility. In other words, it is a matter of gold over God. Other vices follow, like anger, and it leads to the neglect of disciplines, such as prayer. The antidote is hard work and generosity. By the way, see Ephesians 5.28. It's right there. Hard work and generosity. Monks should procure bread by daily toil and then serve as a steward of their resources. Monks resist avarice by practicing total renunciation. They must root out the disposition, refusing to keep one coin for themselves, still not even achieving absolute poverty will solve the problem, at least not completely. It is always in the end an issue of the heart. I love what Greg's going to do in his second presentation today about how significant it is to be single-minded. That's the essence of our call in life. That's where the bridge between monk and ordinary person closes to nothing. God calls all of us to that. Avarice exposes our double-mindedness. Anger expresses itself as a boiling over or as a slow and steady simmer. It is poison to the soul. It undermines contemplation, destroys prayer, and makes us the prisoner of circumstances. For anger exposes our expectation that we have to have things our way. Anger surfaces when we obsess over rights and wrongs and thus stop thinking about or trusting in God. It is better to suffer injury first and to learn to practice patience. Can we excuse it because the Bible says God is angry? We must understand God's anger in light of God's character, Cashin says. In God, there is anger with no disturbance, as he puts it. God gets angry because he is righteous. We get angry because we are selfish. We can allow only one kind of anger, anger against our own sin. Especially dangerous is a brooding anger, hidden by a veneer of politeness. He calls this the simmer rather than the boil, by the way. And in the end, the simmer is much more deadly than the boil. Being caught in traffic and flipping somebody off is certainly bad form. But there's a kind of quiet resentment that grows in the soul. That, in the end, in my opinion, is far more deadly. We mull mull it over. We massage it. At this point, we must beware of dealing only with symptoms. Withdrawal is not the answer. The real issue is the heart, not circumstances. Circumstances only expose our anger. In the end, there are no excuses. Now, I'm quoting from Cashin. This is not for the faint of heart, this quote. Cashin can go down hard, and this is one of those examples The sum total of our improvement and tranquility, then, must not be made to depend on someone else's willing. In other words, how good the people are around us, how nice our wife is, how obedient our children are, or whatever, which will never be subject to our sway. It comes, rather, under our own power. 
And so our not getting angry must derive not from someone else's perfection, but from our own virtue, which is deceived not by another person's patience, but by our own forbearance. Now, that quote is worth pondering. In other words, I can't use my wife for an excuse. A person may seem patient and humble to himself as long as he has nothing to do with anyone else, he goes on to write. But he will soon revert to his former nature should some disturbing event occur. In other words, when I'm by myself, I'm a reasonably righteous person. Put me with my kids and grandkids. I return to my old self. That's where I've got to cultivate the virtue by the grace of God. Vices grow wilder when ignored, he says. They do not become harmless when we avoid The goal is godly disposition of the heart. Sadness. Sadness originates in lack of steady spiritual practice, making us vulnerable. It is the companion of all other vices, he says. The cause is in the heart. Thus, separation or escape is not the solution. It is bitterness, despair of the soul. In its milder form, it surfaces as self-pity. It is often the result of failure, including spiritual failure, I'm quoting. But sometimes it follows upon the vice of anger, which precedes it, or arises out of the desire for some gain that has not been achieved when a person sees that he has failed in his hope of acquiring things that his mind was set on. And then sadness follows. The benefit of sadness is that we feel it so acutely. It is obvious and makes us miserable. We must be willing to surrender the misery and seek eternal blessedness. Called the noonday demon, acedia makes us feel as if we lived in a prison. It grows out of immobility and slothfulness. The monk wants to escape, change circumstances, try something new, or in our world, find another church. He complains and sighs. His mind wanders. He imagines how much he will gain from changing his place. Life is just too hard under current circumstances. Some other monastery, job, abbot, pastor, spouse, whatever. It is all just too much work. Acedia manifests itself in two forms of excess, sleep or busyness. Isn't that interesting? Busyness. Um, you know, we understand acedia now as sloth. That's really not exactly what it means. Doing nothing or doing too much. Escape is not the solution. The solution is to stay in one's cell, find quiet, pursue one's own affairs, work with open hands, or work with one's own hands, live honorably, demand nothing. Idleness is the enemy here. Hard, steady work is the goal. We go back into that practice room and we practice scales. We go to the library and we do our research, whatever it happens to be. If monks refuse to work, they should not eat. Furthermore, monks, uh, further, monks work to be generous, not to accumulate more for themselves or to accomplish some great feat in life. This vice is conquered through resistance. By the way, Evagrius Ponticus has a section on uh, acedia as it uh, 
uh, affects students, and it's hilarious to read. I have my students read it. They flip to the end of the book to see how many pages they have yet to read, and then they read a paragraph, and then they read it again and read it again, and then they use the book for a pillow. It's just very entertaining reading, and he wrote it 1,600 years ago. Vainglory. Vainglory gains strength as it is defeated. It is often disguised as virtue. It is like a dangerous rock lying just below the surface of the sea. It can be cardinal or spiritual. As a cardinal vice, it surfaces as preoccupation with appearance and productivity. As a spiritual vice, it manifests itself as preoccupation with spiritual achievement and influence, like how big our church is. The temptation keeps coming. All other vices weaken with resistance. This vice grows. It is enlivened by success. One fantasizes greatness. The solution is that we learn to do nothing for empty glory. We maintain a godly course in life, whether noticed or applaud- and applauded or not. We reject what leads to boastfulness. We avoid what wins praise. We learn to do all things to the glory of God. And the last in order, pride, is the first in origin. It is fierce and strikes down every virtue. A carnal pride allows no start in the spiritual life at all. One sleeps away in lukewarmness and self-satisfaction, distraction, and resistance. It surfaces in loud talking, bitter silence, rancor, glibness. Spiritual pride despoils and destroys everything. It lays waste all virtues, unlike, say, gluttony, which only affects temperance. Lucifer is the primary example. He thought only of self. He focused on the power of his nature, his free will, his self-sufficiency. Pride assumes that good is self-generated and that it can attain to the glory of God through self-effort alone. Pride thus attacks us at the summit. It is a direct confrontation of God. God is therefore set against it in a way he is not in the case of all other vices. The solution is a simple one. We must admit need and recognize that all is a gift from God. No amount of discipline and effort and contrition is sufficient. No human effort can achieve humility and purity of heart. Human effort is never equal to divine gift. I'm quoting For it behooves us to believe not only that we cannot possess this perfection by our own toil and effort, but that we cannot even bring into play those very things that we use for this end, namely effort, exertion, labor, without the help of God's protection and his inspiration and without the grace of correction and encouragement, which he is accustomed to pour mercifully into our hearts, either through another or by himself when he visits us. What is required is faith, not labor. The correction comes through the gospel, which leads to poverty, obedience, and humility. This will be the case, he goes on to write, in us, when we realize that we can accomplish nothing pertaining to the perfection of virtue apart from his assistance and grace, and also when we believe that the very fact that we have deserved to understand this uh, in truth is his gift. Now, how can we ever hope to find even modest victory over this teeming world of egoistic vice? 
These vices are vicious beasts. They dominate the imagination. They ravage the soul. They so inhabit us that our minds are almost taken over. They might start small, lingering as a shadow in some corner of our mind, but they can grow so loud that they become as big as the sky. How strange and foolish that we think we can keep them safely confined inside the head. Eventually, these thoughts lead to actual sin, and they destroy us. The desert fathers and mothers were devoted to the practice of spiritual discipline. It is no wonder that they were called the athletes of God. Still, they did not believe that the eight deadly vices could be overcome by ascetic practice alone. They emphasized the practice of discipline, to be sure. But in the end, they acknowledged their utter helplessness. Vice is just too strong and human nature just too weak. Cassian argues that the way to freedom and obedience begins with grace. It's a different definition of grace than we, the heirs of the Reformation, understand, especially as we read someone like Luther. In their minds, grace is more like divine help or assistance. Now, this is important to understand. It does not nullify the need for human effort. Instead, it envelops it, inspires it, empowers it. Now, this is my analogy. It is like a mother who asks her young son to jump as high as he can to clear a tall fence, knowing that only she has the height, strength, and leverage to lift him over it. Little does he know that his effort is really not necessary at all. She can just pick him up. Try as he might, he will never be able to jump high enough. Yet the mother still believes that trying, however futile, is good for her son. Our efforts drive us to grace. Our efforts grow out of grace. It's both. Apart from grace, we can do nothing, though we must still try. As Cassian writes, God looks for some sign of willingness and openness, and God honors our willingness and openness by lifting us up over the fence. Oh, here's one story that appears in the conferences. It's one of my favorites. It's delightful. It's a story about the necessity of grace. Now, it's important to observe that it is a story, too, and not some abstract theological exposition. It's one of the great strengths of this movement, by the way, is their storytelling. We do a lot of theology in the abstract. They did their theology through story in many cases. It begins with a young man who, quote, is exceedingly careful about seeking goodness. So picture in your mind some young Biola Whitworth student who is as earnest as earnest can be. They're dripping with a desire to want to please God. He approaches an old man, like myself, to confess that he's having difficulty overcoming the temptation of lust. Showing no understanding and sympathy, the old man shames him so much that the young man falls into despair and decides to leave the desert and return to his former way of life in the city. Code language for return to sin and stop trying. He encounters Abba Apollos on his journey. Apollos observes that he is troubled and so asks what ails him. At first, the young man refuses to speak, but under patient prodding, He tells Apollos the whole story. Apollos advises him not to be discouraged, nor to despair of himself, 
And he admits, I love this, that even at his age and experience, he too struggles against similar temptations. Now, what must that have been like for that young man? Talking to somebody my age, and I say, you know, I'm still struggling with it too. Now go back to yourself just for another day. And he gently reminds him that such temptation cannot be overcome by effort alone, but only by God's mercy. This is not about you, he says. He urges him to return to his cell and stay there for just one more day, resuming his routine of prayer and work. So the young man returns to his cell. Now this is where it gets just too delightful for words. Meanwhile, Apollos realizes that the harsh old man needs to be taught a lesson for giving such bad advice to this young apprentice of his. Standing outside the old man's cell, Apollos prays that he will be tormented by the same temptation that has afflicted the young man. Lord, he says, who allows men to be tempted for their own good, transfer the war which that brother is suffering to this old man. Let him learn by experience in his old age what many years have not taught him. And so let him find out how to sympathize with people undergoing this kind of temptation. The old man is immediately stricken with temptation and yielding almost immediately decides to return to the world. So you can just see this unfolding. Apollos meets him on the way and tells him how foolish and arrogant he was to treat his young apprentice with so much contempt and how presumptuous he was to think he is stronger for he has been unable to struggle against the same temptation for even one day. The old man ought to have given his young apprentice words of consolation and to help him against the devil's attack. Instead, he drove him to despair. Apollos concludes by acknowledging humanity's desperate need for grace. Now, I want you to listen to this carefully. This is not from the pen of Luther. This is from the pen of Cassian. Not a single person could endure the enemy's clever attack, nor quench, nor control the leaping fire natural to the body, unless God's grace preserved us in our weakness. In all our prayers, we should pray for his grace to save us so that he may turn aside the scourge aimed even at you. We receive this grace, my words, not only in the form of forgiveness and consolation, but also in the form of suffering and discipline. God gives both kinds to help us grow to maturity. Again, I'm quoting, for he makes a man to grieve and then lifts him to salvation. He strikes and his hand heals. He humbles and exalts, mortifies and enlivens, leads to hell and brings from hell. Now, this last line is important. It is true that God comes to our assistance. God forgives, God restores, God blesses. God takes the initiative to free us from vice and make us like Jesus Christ, the divine image. But setting and circumstances matter too, which introduces us to the second principle or step in the process. I mean, Cashin doesn't give these steps, so it's my invention, but uh, it's there. 
God gives grace within a context and not always to our liking either. God never works in a vacuum. He works with real people who live in the real world under real circumstances, is married or single, sick or healthy, rich or poor, citizens of the desert or of the city. God can and does work in both the best of circumstances and the worst of circumstances to transform us. Uh, just a, a personal word. I was 20 years married, 20 years widowed, and now 10 years remarried. So I raised my three uh, kids uh, on my own. Uh, those were harsh circumstances. Uh, but God met me there. We just don't have the luxury of always choosing our circumstances. You marry your spouse gets sick. You have a child and the child dies or becomes wayward. It's just life. But God is in all those, is Cashin's argument. In fact, it is often in the worst of circumstances that God does his most important work. This could be the reason why the desert fathers and mothers withdrew into the desert. The barrenness and harshness of the landscape stripped them of all creature comforts and reminded them of their need for God. They did not view the desert as a place of retreat or escape. If anything, the desert fathers and mothers went to the desert to fight the devil, submit themselves to a regimen of discipline, and find God. The second step might strike us as harsh, for it seems to give the impression that God does not care about our circumstances. Well, of course he does. But he cares about something else even more, namely, who we are and what we are becoming, not how good our life is. It's how good we are. Cassian affirms that the only true good is virtue. That's, what, that's almost a direct quote. The only true good is virtue. The only true evil is vice. Now, I'm going to say that again. The only true good is virtue. The only true evil is vice. Everything else, including our circumstances, is indifferent. They can be used for good or evil, depending on how we respond to them, I'm quoting. But those things are indifferent, which can be appropriated to either side, according to the fancy or wish of their owner. As, for instance, riches, power, honor, bodily strength, good health, beauty, life itself. Okay, those are the things we want out of life. Cashin says they're neutral, they're indifferent. And then he goes on, death, poverty, bodily infirmities, injuries, and other things of the same sort, which can contribute either to good or to evil as the character and fancy of their owner directs. An action might be evil, of course, and should be labeled as such. The behavior of Joseph's brothers comes to mind almost immediately as a telling example. What did Joseph say to them? Pointed his finger. You meant it for evil. And then continues, but God worked it out for good. Here, Cassian introduces us to a fascinating and provocative idea. This is pastorally very useful which he learned from one of the desert masters, Abba Theodore. He calls it ambidextrous spirituality. The word ambidextrous describes a person who is equally adept either uh, using either right hand or left hand, like a switch hitter in baseball. 
um, Cassian applies the term not to earthly but to spiritual matters. Ambidextrous disciples, he says, learn to live for Christ in both adversity and prosperity. And they do not require from God one or the other. This power, he writes, we also can spiritually acquire if by making a right and proper use of all things which are fortunate and which seem to be on the right hand, as well as those who are unfortunate and, as we call it, on the left hand. Cassian notes how God can use both prosperity and adversity to advance his purposes. Prosperity is preferable, of course, because it makes God seem good, the world seem right, and faith seem natural, as natural as writing with the dominant hand. Obviously, adversity does the opposite, making life hard for us. Temptation overruns us, doubt plagues us, routine bores us. Ambidextrous Christians take both in stride. As Job and Joseph did, prosperity does not lead to carelessness. Adversity does not lead to despair. Notice, prosperity does not lead to carelessness. Adversity does not lead to despair. Quote, we shall then be ambidextrous when neither abundance nor want affects us. And when the former does not entice us to the luxury of a dangerous carelessness, while the latter does not draw us to despair and complaining. But when, when, giving thanks to God in either case alike, we gain one and the same advantage out of good and bad fortune. God can use adversity as well as prosperity to enlarge our capacity to trust God and be conformed to the image of his Son. They are tools in his hands like the hammer and chisel Michelangelo used to sculpt his figures, setting them free from their marble grave. It's what God's doing in our lives, setting us free from our marble grave. We don't need just the right set of circumstances to mature as Christians, nor to find happiness in life. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, God remains who God is, faithful. He uses whatever is at hand to make us his and make us like Christ. Circumstances are thus, from one point of view, neutral. They can be neutral because God is never neutral. His entire being is devoted to our redemption, as Paul proclaims so triumphantly, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. All right, just a couple more things. Discipline. Cassian's third step or principle is the practice of discipline. The practices he outlines are not for the faint of heart. Oh, my goodness. The stories of the desert fathers and mothers strike terror in the soul because their disciplined way of life seems so extreme and was extreme. I mean, crazy extreme. They fasted for days on end, stood up and stayed, uh, stood up and stayed up all night long to pray, embraced absolute poverty, spent days, weeks, even years in isolation, avoided all contact with, contact with the opposite sex, chained themselves to rocks, lived atop pillars, ate nothing but dried bread and vegetables. This is discipline to the extreme. I am not advising this, by the way. Cassian warns that ascetic practice is inv- insufficient and even dangerous, if unaccompanied by discretion and balance. 
He mentions examples of desert saints who practiced extreme discipline, submitting themselves to every form of deprivation only to become deceived and lost. What, he asks, can be learned from such tragic downfalls? They were not lacking discipline, he concedes. That was not their problem. But they lacked discretion. Quote, for when the works of the above-mentioned virtue were abounding in them, discretion alone was wanting and allowed them not to continue even to the end. Nor can any other reason for their falling off be discovered except that they were not sufficiently instructed by their elders that they could not obtain judgment and discretion which passing by excess on either side teaches a monk always to walk along the royal road which Cassian defines as a balance between fanaticism on the one hand and slackness on the other. Cassian this extols the virtue of moderation and temperance. In fact, as he puts it, excessive abstinence is still more injurious to us than careful satiety. Instead, we should aim for the right measure of strictness. Discipline does play a role, but it must be the right kind of discipline, which is why the guidance of the elders is so important. It was absolutely taboo, by the way, in the desert tradition for anyone to go out on their own. They had to be mentored by an elder. Finally, purity of heart. Cassian is critical of excess because he keeps his eye on the goal, which is not discipline or indulgence, but purity of heart and love for God. He is careful to distinguish means from ends. He mentions purity of heart often, which we could define following Soren Kierkegaard as willing only one thing, or as Greg does so well, single-minded devotion to God. Detachment and deprivation is the negative expression of this. But Cassian prefers to spell it out positively. He uses the story of Mary and Martha to make his point. It's in book one of the conferences. The desert fathers and mothers do not condemn Martha. Cassian, for one, honors her virtue, for she was performing a service to Jesus himself. But she was distracted and irritated by many things. Mary, he concludes, chose the better part because she directed all of her attention to Jesus and gazing upon him contemplated his beauty, wisdom, and glory. Everything else is secondary, including such good things as asceticism as service, which can and should be done for one purpose only, that, quote, the soul may ever cleave to God and to heavenly things, unquote. Again, a quote. Whatever is alien to this, however great it may be, should be given second place or even treated as of no consequence or perhaps even as hurtful. Thus, perfection is arrived, he goes on, it's simply, it's simply by self, not arrived at simply by self-denial and the giving up of all goods and the casting away of honors unless there is that charity which consists of purity of heart and love for God alone. At the end of uh, time, life as we know it will end and all ascetic discipline and even works of charity will no longer be necessary. Then we will behold and enjoy 
the very presence of the living God. Even now, all of life should point in that direction, even when we must live more like Martha than like Mary, as all of you have discovered, and I did those many years of being a single parent. All right, three quick takeaways. I want to conclude by exploring the usefulness of Cassian's ideas for today, especially for pastors. Cassian reminds us that the Christian faith is not a self-help religion. He describes the eight deadly vices and exposes the folly of mere human effort to fix the problem. These vices run too deep in human nature. The problems we face are too strong. We need help from the outside, for we are fighting a battle against a superior foe. But we know a God who is more superior still. God stands with us. God promises to save us. God sends his spirit to transform us. We know this is true because of Jesus Christ. So my wife's mentor uh, uh, is a therapist. She's a therapist, too. He's a master. He's in his 70s now. He's published a lot. And he said that in every human person, there is a black hole. Every human person. And eventually, they're forced to stare into it. A bottomless pit of terror, trauma, need, fear, sin, habit, whatever. And only then can they discover that God Almighty through Jesus Christ has descended to the very bottom of that pit to catch us. Now, this in a sense what Cashin is doing. All of these guys were masters of discipline. But in the end, they all knew there was a black hole. And only God can save us from that. Uh, the second thing, I won't even read here because I know we're short on time. The second is this notion of the indifference of our circumstances. You, as pastors or as lay leaders, spend a lot of time dealing with circumstances that people in your congregation or your circle of influence simply do not want. And it's easy for them under those circumstances to label it as the enemy. Well, it is the enemy. It is rightfully called evil. Uh, we can suffer terribly in life from all forms of, of deprivation and loss. Some our own fault, many not. But in the end, the greatest enemy we face is always our own hearts. It's not those circumstances. And the way to eventual peace and transformation is to look at those circumstances and somehow find God in them. Cassian actually says that prosperity is far more risky and dangerous to the spiritual life than adversity because it lulls us into sleep and begins to think we have the right to the good life. And in this fallen world, none of us do. Now, this is a hard, a hard truth to come to. No, it's not the death of a spouse, as I experienced, or uh, the death of a child, or our cancer, or our divorce or our uh, uh, lost job. In the end, that is not the greatest enemy we face. It's the human heart. Finally, Cassian really forces us to ponder what we want out of life. And this is really a setup for, for, for Greg. We might find our problems too much because solution, the solution we imagine is the wrong one. 
We live in a fallen world. Even under the best of circumstances, life is bound to disappoint us. Cashian calls us to a higher goal, not happiness, but purity of heart, not self-love, but love for God. This is so, so lofty and so worthy. So I commend him to you. Thank you for your patient listening. All right, I'll invite our respondents on up. Thank you again, Jerry, for that wonderful presentation. We'll have um, a quick word from our respondents and uh, any questions that you all, I've got the microphone and uh, I'll be able to pass that around. I'll go first at the mic here. Um, I, there's so much that's wonderful in that. Thank you very much for that. Um, I was really struck by an offhand, offhand comment that you made about the fact that nobody um, in, the, in the Desert Fathers context and Desert Fathers and Mothers, no one went out without a father. Like everyone was accountable to some sort of... Um, right. They had an Abba Anthony or Abba Theodore, Abba Apollos, whoever, whoever it was, they always mm-hmm. had one. And I'm, my thought about translating this to the church is I wonder where those Abbas are. Uh, you know, yes. who, who are Abbas and Amas, right? Yeah, who are these people, and, mm-hmm. and how are they being created? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if you've seen in your context, uh, in your ministry, or your, your teaching, um, or you can give us a word about how that might be. How, how does the church cultivate those yeah, sort of people? That's a good. In fact, uh, there are many stories in Desert Fathers and Mothers. Um, by the way, th- th- this collection is filled with humor, and you've got to get inside it enough to realize the jokes that they're telling. Uh, but they mock young men and women who, um, who are trying to go on their own. Um, uh, so there's one where a, a young man goes to a, a famous Abba and a bunch of his uh, apprentices are, are working in the garden growing food. He said, well, I see that they're uh, working in the garden, but I, I'm called to pray all day long because I want to follow the way, way of Mary, not Martha. Well, the Abba immediately sniffs out what's going on here and says, oh, well, tells an assistant, bring him, bring him to a, 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 a cell where he can pray all day long. Well, at the end of the day, this young man comes out. It's always a young man, which, by the way, is very gratifying for me. And uh, it says, well, where's my dinner? And the Abba says, well, uh, you wanted to pray all day long. We, we figured you were so spiritual, you didn't need to eat anymore. We're not as spiritual as you are, so we actually have to work out in the fields and grow our own food. And, of course, this young man is immediately stabbed to the heart. He apologizes. I'm so sorry, oh, holy father. And the father's, the punchline is, you know, in, in the world in which we live, uh, Mary and Martha need each other. We need to live in both worlds at the same time. So that those kinds of stories are everywhere. We've got to find a person who, not necessarily a master, but certainly has had more experience. And it makes me ask the question, is the responsibility of a local church to pour some life and time into more established believers and help them get to the point where they, in turn, can begin investing in others? Uh, In other words, to take the step from, I've known God for a long time, 
I've raised my family, whatever it happens to be, to the next step where I'm going to start intentionally investing in the younger generation. And I'm not sure we've done a very good job of that. In fact, I, I was thinking about this just a few months ago. I know, I know a masters in medicine, in dentistry, in law. I know masters of mechanic, uh, mechanics. I had a total hip replacement done 12 years ago. And I'm really grateful that the surgeon was not looking at a YouTube video, video to figure out what to do. He just, he knew. It was in him. I don't know now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not giving the impression that they need to be perfect. People who've achieved mastery know they're far from perfect. It's not really the point. It's their longing. It's their heart. It's their single-mindedness. I think we need to think about that some. Thank you, Ryan. Um, I want to paraphrase, and you can tell me if I understood your talk correctly. You and didn't, then... Elizabeth. Let's go on to the next one. <laughs> and then, but then I have a question. So, yeah, but if, if you tell me I misunderstood it, um, then please just – then that that will be common enough. <laughs> but um, so I'm not wearing a show to house button, but I'll plug my husband's class that he took a couple weeks ago when I was watching our son, and Ryan came home, and he said um, – yeah, the, the telos of humankind is contemplation. And it's um, being with God in this contemplative state. And kind of like what I'm gathering from your talk and from Cassian is we go into the desert to bring out all the things in us that contradict that contemplative state where we're single-minded and purity of heart, focused on God and can just abide with him. And the spiritual disciplines are... Um, ways in which we sort of jump and hope God catches us to bring us into that place of contemplation? Well, yes and no. Yes, the ideal for them was contemplation. No, at this point, I think many uh, from this tradition, including some of the uh, great early church fathers like Nisif, for example, were probably a little too platonic. Um, they, they, a lot of them borrowed from origin, who believed the end of life was what I call the gaze, just contemplating the beauty and glory of God. Well, I don't know if that's actually right. I mean, I think our capacity to know and experience and gaze on God grows with maturity, and certainly in the exalted state, in the presence of God, we will be dazzled by that. I think we're probably still going to work, too. And be creative. I mean, if we're made in the image of God, that means we have some of the same capacities that God has. And one of them is creativity. Another one is love. I mean, we're not just going to love God. We're going to love everybody else that God loves too. So I'm a little worried that that vision of the, of the final state is a tad too boring. I would love to watch Sorry. you in... Um... Sorry. <laughs> I'd love to watch you and Ryan's professor, Dr. Borsman, duke it out about that. That'd be really fun. Um, but, okay, so... Next year, next year. Yeah, ne ne next year. All right, Alex, next we, year. But um, we, both, we both come from Dutch reform backgrounds, but he obviously took a really bad turn. Because <laughs> uh, uh, we, we Dutch people, we like to work. <laughs> I, I say that in jest, by the way. No, no comment. But um, okay. So my second question, though, is that so that's clarifying. So it's kind of like even in heaven, we're going to be 
um, or in the new earth. You know, like yeah, we'll have a I'll new give you, I'll give you an analogy. Uh, when, when, when you've been married for a while, um, a long while, and it's been a good marriage, it's been a marriage that's had a lot of growth in it, you learn to carry your spouse with you at the, in the deepest places. You're always loving that spouse. You're deeply aware of belonging to that spouse, even if you're not necessarily with the spouse. And I just think our capacity that God has created in us because of, uh, we're made in the divine image is enormous. And our primary capacity is to know love and trust and worship the living God. That's what we were made for. Um, but it's not at the exclusion of other things that God has given us capacity for. Those, it's not one or the other. It's both at the same time. In the same way that I, I, I love my wife a lot. But I love her in loving children and grandchildren and doing lots of other things. I carry her with me right now. I know she's praying for me right now. So you're saying it's an embodied love. Well, it's we're not, embodied yeah. creatures. Yeah. We, we, we don't have bodies. We are bodies. God's made us that way. Um, Sorry. I'll ask. Well, I just wanted to see if you wanted to make a comment before I ask a second question. Okay. Well, my second question is um, I'm really, really struck by your analogy of... Um, a, a young child jumping and the mother catches him and, and lifts him over the fence and this image of grace and God helping us with grace uh, like grace is God ennobling our or giving wings to our efforts but he still wants us to try mm-hmm. and I this might seem like a really simple and dumb question but why why does he want us to try why does he want us to jump yeah well again I, I think uh, we go back to Genesis 1 and that is that God has made us in his image we are unique creatures that way. Uh, and he breathed into us the breath of life. We're simply different from all other creatures. We're animals, certainly. Uh, but we also bear the mark of, of God's very nature. We carry the divine image. And part of his reclamation and redemptive and restorative work in our lives is to help us rediscover what that is, not just to dust it off, but to reclaim it. I mean, this is one of the great... Uh, contributions the Eastern Orthodox has given to us. The Western, especially Catholic Church, has leaned in the direction of Christ's uh, salvific death, substitutionary atonement, those kinds of things. Well, amen to all of that. But the Eastern Church has got this, um, um, uh, or focuses on um, the divine image. So one of their favorite passages is the uh, story of transfiguration. And Jesus, you know, appears with Elijah and Moses, and he's in this kind of exalted, beatific state of beauty and light and so on. And uh, I think the jump is a way of saying, I take you seriously. You've been made in my image. I want to grow you up. It seems like it really is a return to Eden and that it's this redemption even of work in our own efforts and that being a participation with God in some way. Now, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Interesting. Freedom is the word he uses. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, we're looking at him, not at ourselves, 
are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All of the Christian faith, in my opinion, is simply a turning away from self and looking to God. When we look at God, we find freedom, and that in turn begins to transform us from one degree of glory to another. And the cool thing about it is we're hardly aware it's happening. We're not looking at a mirror anymore, just at ourselves. We're looking at the mirror of Jesus Christ, the true human. And as we look at the true human, we become that. From one degree of glory to another, which from the spirit. By the way, Irenaeus argued that that would be an eternal process. That it would keep going on forever. Since God's glory is inexhaustible, our approximation will always be an eternal process, which I find really intriguing. I don't know if it's biblical, but it's cool. <laughs> and I, I go with cool once in a while. I, hanging with Anglicans, cool. My status at Whitworth has just gone up. <laughs> go ahead, Lee. Yeah, I was thinking in the early part of your talk about listening and C.S. Lewis's thoughts in Till We Have Faces. Um, that that it takes having a having a face that we don't have unveiled face that we don't have. Um, anyway, I, I I had a few thoughts. One was to plug Nishota House um, shamelessly. I'm not on the payroll, but I think it's essential that you know one of the things I'm always thankful for is that in my early 20s I got a really solid grounding in ascetical theology um, with with a master, with this 80 year old bishop that just mm. taught us how to be prayerful, meditative human beings. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I'm always thankful for that, uh, that Neshota House has this emphasis upon teaching and, and, and equipping students with um, with spiritual tech, so to speak. Uh, very um, good. And I found that to be really helpful in ministry. And one of the things that I was thinking as you gave the talk was um, the need for uh, practices of confession as essential to this work of catechesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and hearing the daily office readings this morning even you know, cemented that, that, that there's this, that I, part of um, uh, leading people th- into divine grace is having this ministry of, of hearing and diagnosing and, uh, and it's a work of spiritual direction but also a work of, of Offering people to God in, in confession, and um, I think that's really, really an essential idea. You know, I constantly have people that are coming into our parish that their idea of grace is so anemic, yeah, because it's basically yeah. this understanding of you know it's it's the the classic pseudo Lutheran understanding of the snow covered turd, so to speak, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and it's just first of all it's demeaning to the image of God in us. It, it's not true. Um, but it also gives the sense that um, you you're not even given God's power to live as He intends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that uh, that you are you're wasting your time trying to um, seek out the face of God in in, in life. You, you you have to be. There's almost this idea of quietism lurking in the background, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. And, and yeah. it's damaging. It's deeply mm-hmm. damaging. And so um, I'm always thankful that um, 
that uh, early on in my life I was given this um, uh, call, really, to learn um, as much as I could about the spiritual life and the interior life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I, I think we're not equipping people in the church sufficiently for that task today. And and there are ways to do it. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear more from you about how you think that ought to go. Um, I keep thinking about the need to establish schools um, in the in the patristic sense, um, even in the monastic sense, a school for the Lord's service. Um, and wondered if you had thoughts on that. Well, the first is that grace doesn't come in a vacuum. It's not an abstraction. It's a, it's a real power. It's a life that God gives us. And it can't be separated from the circumstances in which we live. So a good spiritual director, a good pastor, a good mentor will help people find God and the grace of God in their circumstances, not apart from, from it. That's always the harder, but it's always the better and the more robust uh, the other thing about schooling, uh, one of my favorite early Christian texts, I tend to gravitate toward the stuff that's got legs on it, that's got color and texture and light and life, um, is um, the, the tribute that Gregory Thaumaturgus pays to Origen. It's called a panegyric to Origen. I'm sure you've read it. Obviously, Greg is familiar with it. It's really worth Googling. It's not very long. I always favor short texts, by the way, too. It's one of the things I resent about Cashin's conferences is they're insufferably long. (laughs) Wow. Institute's much easier to start with that than the conferences. Anyway, and Origen, or Thaumaturgus, who uh, was converted under Origen's influence when Origen was running the school in um, Caesarea. He had left Alexandria, founded his own little training academy. Really, that's what you'd call it. Uh, in the third century. He died in 254. And Thaumaturgus eventually went and became the bishop in north-central modern-day Turkey, then Asia Minor. And he became known as a, a, a miracle worker, very famous. Anyway, he writes this glorious tribute to Origen. And what's interesting about that is that he describes not just... He describes Origen's teaching method, which was quite unusual... And he describes his character. In other words, who the man was. And then thirdly, he describes the fact that Origen lived life with him. So those three things are real takeaways when you read that document. How they studied, and they studied texts, famous texts. Uh, the kind of man Origen was, man of patience and virtue and goodness. And the third was that Origen lived life with them. And that has, that's been imprinted on me. Yeah, I mean, when I take these students up to the mountains for a month, uh, I mean, I'm with them 24-7 except when I crawl into my sleeping bag at night and when I take a shower. And you can't hide. And I started doing this in 1993 I haven't done it every year. I do about every two or three years. I'm done now, but I take students up there. And early on, I took my three kids. So I was raising three young children in front of 25 students 24-7 for a month. Talk about exposure. Yeah, I mean, you just, kids cannot be perfect for that long. (laughs) 
Parents cannot be perfect for half that long. Um, I just did life with them. Really meaningful. Students remember that, not because I was a perfect parent, but that they saw family unfolding in that kind of context. So those three things I commend to you. From Gregory of Thomas, it's called uh, panegyric to origin. I think that's it. Yeah. Well, it strikes me, too, how um, one of the things we're not good at as modern people is thinking about study as a, as a leisurely enterprise. Uh, Joseph Pieper it, wrote a famous yeah, book Joseph called uh, great, Leisure, yeah, great the, uh, of the, something of culture. The basis of culture, yeah. Basis of culture, right. And, and how churches will often, you know, you go to a class and they put a workbook in front of you and they yeah. put, you know, all of these texts in front of you. And it's just, it can be overwhelming and there's not this sense of wonder and, and uh, holy curiosity and, yeah. and, and, and uh, joy to it. Mm-hmm. That's good. 